You're listening to A Senseless Death. In the late hours of November 7, 2014, Zachary Lamb and his fiance made their way home after a night out. Somewhere along the short 2.4-mile route, a man started following them. Zach tried to lose the car, but it didn't work. They were followed all the way to the street in front of his apartment. When he got out to confront the man, he was shot and killed. Episode 3, Road Rage. Gun violence surrounds us these days. Kids, not guns. 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 In spring of 2018, there was a March for Our Lives rally in response to 17 kids being killed at a high school in Parkland, Florida. I was in Spokane for this project and felt it was important to take time for this demonstration, one of the many held across the country that day. It also seemed like a perfect opportunity to take my youngest nephew, eight at the time of Zach's murder, now 12, to his first protest. He seemed a little more interested in the dogs we came across than anything else. Why do you think there are dogs out here? I'm one day away from People like to walk their dogs and do protests at the same time. It's kind of convenient. No way. That they wouldn't have to take two separate, very cold trips outside. Very true. When I first heard about Zach's case, it was hard for me to believe a road rage incident could lead to someone being shot and killed. I've heard stories of people getting angry to the point of a physical confrontation or causing harm to a car, but that was it. Turns out, it's not only common, it's a growing epidemic. The term road rage was first used by a local news station in Los Angeles after drivers there committed almost 70 shootings in a little over 10 weeks during the summer of 1987. Those shootings killed five people and wounded 11 others. While we haven't seen such a concentrated spree of gun-fueled road rage since then, it still happens at an alarming rate all across the country. I found a number of news articles with incidents eerily similar to Zach's, unsolved and seemingly random. One such story was recent, in June 2017. Dylan Spade was merging onto Interstate 20 in Arlington, Texas, when he nearly collided with another car. Dylan, only 19, flipped off the driver and continued down the road. His girlfriend, who was in the car with him, saw the other vehicle speed up to pull alongside the driver's side of their pickup. A single shot was fired, hitting Dylan in the head. He was killed instantly. His girlfriend grabbed the wheel of the still-moving vehicle and tried to steer to safety. They crashed into a tire shop while the killer sped off. The case remains unsolved. I've been lucky to have only encountered very minor incidents of anger on the road, nothing I would categorize as full-blown road rage. But after researching and seeing how prevalent these incidents are, I wanted to learn about other people's experiences. I made a post on social media talking about Zach's case and asking friends to share their stories. My comment section was flooded, some with multiple stories. Out of all the stories shared with me, I was drawn to those from my male friends. They talked about their fear of something bad happening, but also admitted the rage they felt in the moment. 
and how sometimes their actions escalated the situation. I thought maybe by talking to them, I could get a glimpse into what leads someone to a violent, deadly event on the road. My friend Joe reached out right away. We met each other in college and have stayed connected through social media over the years. Joe's not the type to pick a fight. Being six foot five and native Hawaiian, he certainly could, but he has more of a giant teddy bear feel to him. But like most of us, he can get angry while driving. We set up a time to talk by phone since he lives on Oahu. He tells me about a situation he experienced while on his way to work at the local television station. I was late for work and um, I come out of this uh, Radio Shack parking lot actually. I was picking up some electronic stuff for work and I accidentally cut this couple off. And you know the sorry wave, I tried, oh, sorry wave, sorry wave. And they both lean out the window like, fuck you, fuck you. I was like, oh, oh, heavens, fuck me. Well, fuck you, too. (laughs) I flip them off back, you know. That escalated it. That was my first mistake. So I'm driving to work, and uh, the TV station shares studio space at a high school. I notice they're following me, and I'm like, ah, they'll get over. It's Hawaii. No one's crazy here. That was my second mistake. I lead these nuts onto a high school campus full of children. And I I feel really bad about that. You know, I could have endangered all those kids. They pull up behind me and jump out. It's a couple. And the guy is scared looking. He doesn't want to be there. I'm a foot taller and 100 pounds heavier than him, and he don't want to be there. The lady, on the other hand, was this great big local gal, easily over 200 pounds, built like a linebacker, and came just running up screaming. Right there, I should have been like, oh, hey, let's everyone calm down. You know, sorry I cut you off. Hey, what can I do? Instead of that, I was like, fuck you again. (laughs) So, yeah, that was a mistake, too. There's another opportunity to de-escalate that I didn't take. So, when she gets close enough, this big 200-plus pound chick sails up in the air like Charles Barkley getting a rebound. It comes down with a double hammer fist on on my collarbone. You'll, you'll recall I'm six and a half feet tall. Yeah. <laughs> it staggered me a bit. It, it would have it would have downed an average guy. I, I think I, I get the feeling that's your go-to move. <laughs> that, wow. that, that's her that's her thing. You know that that works all the time. So, all of a sudden I'm actively engaged in open hand with a gal, and I really just really really don't want to hit a girl. <laughs> but you know she's big and dangerous. Over their shoulder, I could see a toddler strapped in a car seat with this horrified look on his little face. You know, I, I, I did the first smart thing that day. So I backed up a couple of steps, whipped out a phone, started calling the cops. I figured I could absorb a couple more hits before I actually had to, like, start doing something. Luckily, when I whipped out the phone, started calling the cops, you know, they were smart enough to hop in the car and split, so... Did you, like, do you think it was that that she thought you were, that you almost harmed, you know, her family in the car? Like, that what do you could think be was... it. Yeah, that, I, in retrospect, it could be that, you know, they had to throw on the brakes and her kid was in there. It could be like maternal instinct going berserk and a lack of coolness. Because the guy was driving. He could have just said, hey, calm down. You know, that kid's okay. We're okay. Calm down. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it just. Well, and to go for that long to pursue. Yeah, like it was that... like miles. It was like, it was at least a couple of miles at the work. 
but it's really you know it's when someone's screaming at you and being aggressive it fires up that lizard brain you know a party of the the fight or flight kind of thing going on so well i find that i have that reaction uh in my car more than i have it anywhere else like if i if i have someone do that to me on the street and i'm just walking my first instinct is to more retreat as like pure safety but for some reason i guess in my car i feel like i have a weapon so well yeah you think about it, you're in your car you're in your iron man suit you know you got you got two or three tons of steel around you can do anything you want with it this incident still sticks with joe especially since he teaches citizen journalism classes and has worked with his students on how to de-escalate tense situations by extracting themselves walking or running away if necessary and for all his teaching others when such a moment presented itself, he didn't do any of that. Lucas is another friend I've known for years. Unlike Joe, Lucas doesn't often back down from an argument, especially if he feels you're in the wrong. He's a self-described grumpy old man, even though he's only in his 30s. When Lucas told me briefly about his story, I appreciated how forthcoming he was. He didn't try to sugarcoat or justify his bad behavior in the situation. His story takes place in a small, blue-collar, mid-coast town in Maine. If you live here, you either work in the local fishing, clam digging, or tourism industries. So what happened was there's, there's like a weird turnaround situation on this road. And so what everyone does is they flip a U-turn and you sort of, it's not a super wide road. So you sort of veer over to the side. You sort of veer right a little bit so you give yourself enough room to make the U-turn. And so I sort of did that, and I hit the blinker, but the blinker probably wasn't on maybe more than one or two clicks. And this guy came flying behind me in a truck, and it's a 25-mile-an-hour zone, and he's going at least 45. And so he didn't realize that I was going to do this U-turn. And when I tried to do it, he just slammed on his brakes and nearly hit me and then started screaming at me, and I finished my U-turn and went and parked and then he just jumped out of the truck and just started chasing me down the street, screaming at me. And I'm like, what? What are you doing, dude? I thought it was interesting that this took place in a main part of town with open shops and people coming and going. I asked Lucas if he thought it was being in public or something else that made the guy back down and go on his way. Did you get a sense that he was starting to un, like realize his surroundings when you guys were kind of screaming at each other on the street and that's what caused him to back down? Or what do you think caused him to back down? I think he, you know, he ran out of four-letter words that he knew. And he sort of came at me and he sort of, I think he expected me to either be terrified and drive away or get out of the car and try to fight him. And I just sat in the car and I rolled the window down and I just started screaming profanities at him. And I know more of them than he does. And I wasn't going to stop. And do you feel like it changes when we're in cars because we have an even greater sense of entitlement? Yeah, because you've got, like, that shield between you. And that's part of why I didn't get out of the car. I knew he was bigger than me. You know, even, like, like subconsciously, I knew this guy's bigger than me stay in the car Um, because he's not going to come into your car. And if he does, then there's so many witnesses. But you you sort of knew, like, you've kind of got that, you know, you're like a football player with a helmet on when you have, when you're in a vehicle, I think. And so it's a little bit extra protection, and 
you know, it's also you've got then a bit of a weapon on your hands. So if you really wanted to be a dick, then you could run him over. More than talking about the incident itself, I wanted to hear his reflections on how he felt after everything was over and the adrenaline left. And then afterwards, you know, you're a little like, oh, that could have gone badly. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like any sort of situation where you nearly get in a fight with someone. You know, your sort of adrenaline takes over and you just do what you need to do. And then afterwards you go, oh, shit. That was that was not ideal for anything. That could have ended poorly or whatever. I mean, I didn't have a kid in the car, so that's good. But I w- it wouldn't even occur to me. It, I tell people, you know, to what the, what I think of them in the most colorful language possible, regardless of where I am and what the context is. So it does. It didn't really occur to me that I was doing anything out of the ordinary. I'm like a middle class straight white guy who's six foot one. So I kind of have ingrained in the back of my head that nothing bad can happen to me anyway. Mm. And so you're like, well, what's going to happen? I mean, I'm not going to get arrested. <laughs> not, none, nothing bad will happen to me. So why not? I can't say I'm surprised by Lucas's reaction. He's right. He has the privilege to get angry without the fear of consequences. My friend Jeff doesn't live with those same privileges. Being indigenous, his day-to-day reality is different, even in the more liberal parts of the Pacific Northwest. A quick note, sound quality here is not so great. Jeff called to tell me his story while he was driving, which felt apropos. This happened, you know, oddly enough, in downtown Portland. And they just pulled next to me, asked me to roll up on the window, and there was three white, I don't know, college-age guys in it. I thought they were just asking me questions. And then the one on the passenger, basically his words were, um, um, white power, kill everything that isn't white. And then they all stared at me like, waiting for me to do something. And it's, you know, the stuff that you hear about in... Well, like the 50s, you know, the deep south. And so for me, it was, I was really startled. That was my first, you know, feeling. It's like, what? This is happening here in North, the Northwest and in Portland? Jeff then told me about another encounter. And I was just going about my day and, you know, I was, I was in front and I was going to turn right, put my blinker on. And then I just realized I, I, it was the wrong turn. I need to go straight. So then the guy pulls up next to me at that light and just starts yelling at me. <laughs> it's like, you know, do you not know how to drive or something like that? Uh, so even now, like, I started getting angry, actually, just because you kind of grew up with those types of people. Like, you know, people who have always been assholes. And so this is one of those types. And so, and I let him get away with it. And that's probably one of the things that really just starts to eat at you. And probably why there are incidents of road rage. You know, there's just that, that eating inside of you of someone that said something, but you just let him get away with it. And that builds up over time. But yeah, so, I mean, I just let him get by, go by. And then I, he even like cut in front of me, like, pushed his car in front of my car 
And I should have hit him now that I'm thinking about it. But no, I just let him, I just stood there and let him get in, get in front of me, you know, and then that was that. But even yeah. after that, I was gonna, I was gonna follow him. I admit it. I asked Jeff what would have happened if he did. Well, obviously there was gonna be a fight. And I'm not necessarily a violent person, but at, you know, I was thinking, actually I was thinking back to those, to those times, like the three uh, racists in the car next to me that threatened my life. I, th- I let them get away. T- and that's, you know, at a certain point, you just, you know, you can't do that. Yeah. I mean, you can. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I, I'm just not a big, I'm just not a bigger person, I guess. You know, I'm like, I'm getting to the point where, especially when you get older, too, and you just kind of get tired of that stuff. It's like when you're, you, you, and you, kind of what I said, it, you know, the car insulates you, you know. That's why people do embarrassing things in the car. Like, I'll sing at the top of my lungs in my car because no one else can hear me. Because no one else can, you know, affect me. It's it's almost, you know, as if we're we're inside ourselves in the car. And so that's the whole, <laughs> I think, idea behind get so upset because we can let out our anger and express ourselves without being judged. I mean, sometimes our kids are in the back and that's bad. <laughs> but usually most of that stuff, like I'll call people assholes and call people whatever inside the car because no one can hear me. That's the other thing, too, is, like, it's a good thing I didn't have a gun on me when those incidents happened. You know, yeah. especially the the racist one, because um, I used to carry a gun on me. Uh, I had a carrying concealed weapon license, you know. I carried it for, I believe, five years, like, in my back pocket. You know, it was a small gun. But then after a while, I realized, you know, after f- five years of carrying it every day, it's too much of a responsibility. Um when I was at, when, at that moment in Portland, that's all I really wished I had. Because I probably would have unloaded on them and killed them all. I wanted to try and better understand the special form of aggression when guns intersect with cars. I reached out to Dr. Brad Bushman, a professor at Ohio State University who's been studying aggression and the weapons effect for the past 30 years. My academic grandfather, Len Berkowitz, did the first research about this in the 60s called the weapons effect. And we already know that when mass media characters use weapons, like in violent films or TV programs or video games, that it can increase aggression in viewers. But he was interested in a more basic question, and that is, does the mere presence of a weapon make people more aggressive. So he did a study where participants competed with another person who was pretending to be another participant, an accomplice, and they uh, took turns evaluating each other's performance on a task uh, using electric shocks. And that was the measure of aggression, how many electric shocks they gave to the other person. And when he seated participants at the table, he said, oh, I can't believe that other experimenter forgot to clean up after himself again. Please ignore the these items on the table. And on the table in one condition was a handgun and a rifle. In another condition, it was a badminton racket. And in the third condition, the table was empty. What he found is the participants who sat at the table with just a gun laying on the table were gave more shocks to their partner 
Professor Bushman wondered what the weapons effect would be in cars. Survey research found that drivers who had a gun in their vehicle were significantly more likely than drivers with no gun in their vehicle to make obscene gestures, tailgate, or both, even after controlling for many other factors related to aggressive driving. So he created an experiment inside a driving simulation to see the effect of guns when someone is behind the wheel and prove causality. We put people in a car. Uh, we made them angry by having them drive in a scenario uh, with a lot of frustrating events. And on the passenger seat was either a gun or a tennis racket. And we did this basically the same thing. Oh, I can't believe the other experimenter didn't clean up after himself. Just ignore that object. And, you know, people couldn't ignore it. Drivers who uh, were in the condition where there was a gun on the seat were more aggressive than those who were in the condition where there was a tennis racket on the seat. An example of this experiment was featured on the Science Channel show Through the Wormhole. It was fascinating to watch how people reacted with more aggression when a gun was placed in the seat next to them. Professor Bushman and his team also recreated another experiment to look at this issue from a different angle. What if the gun wasn't in your car, but you saw it in someone else's? They took a large pickup truck to a semi-busy four-way stop. Anytime someone would drive up behind them, they waited at the stop sign for 12 seconds, with no other cars around to prevent them from proceeding through the intersection. In one scenario, they would have nothing in the back window of the pickup, and in another, they would have a rifle hanging in a gun rack. In the times where a gun was visible, they found drivers to be more aggressive, honking and holding their horns, driving around the truck in an unsafe manner through the intersection, sometimes while yelling angrily, the opposite of what you'd expect. As Professor Bushman puts it, it's an instinctive response, not a logical one. There's nothing logical about it. The study concluded that just seeing a gun, even if it's in another vehicle, makes someone behave more aggressively. Traffic accidents are the leading cause of death in like 15 to 29 year olds. And over half of traffic accidents are due to angry and aggressive drivers, more than texting or alcohol consumption or other factors. I asked Professor Bushman if any of his findings helped him better understand the type of person who's prone to violent road rage. We did a a paper on the link between narcissism and aggressive driving. The common myth is that people think aggressive people have low self-esteem, but they really don't. They, they think they're special people that deserve special treatment, and when they don't get the treatment they think they're entitled to, they lash out at others in an aggressive way, and those types of people are narcissists. Even Zach was prone to road rage. It was something my sister worried about with him. Oh, yes. He was the worst at road rage. Not rage necessarily, but letting you know how he felt if you weren't driving correctly. So he'd always be doing that. But, oh, my gosh, we get in the car and somebody, like, cut in front of him or was driving too slow or turned the wrong way or didn't have their lights on. His head was always out the window yelling or saying something, and so I was, I was always nervous with him, like, stop, 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 like, 
Somebody's gonna, you know, do something someday, so. It's very possible Zach was part of instigating the incident that led to his death. But nothing he did or could have done should have resulted in losing his life. I wanted to research road rage to better understand the type of person who would kill someone because of it. And maybe if we can see this type of behavior in ourselves or others in our lives, we can address it before it gets to such violent levels. Because in America, guns aren't becoming less available anytime soon. If the prevailing theory is true, that Zach and his murderer did not know each other, then this entire incident was a random occurrence. Wrong place, wrong time. But think about the staggering amount of choices each person had to make to collide in that wrong place at that wrong time. Not just that day, but in the days leading up, in the years, in their life. If it was road rage, what led the murderer to go from a momentary impulse of anger, what most people have likely felt at some point, to something sustained and purposeful, making the choice to not just yell and honk and drive away, but instead to follow Zach around town for close to a half hour and ultimately all the way to his home. When the term road rage was coined back in 1987, one of the cases in that spree of shootings was when Albert Morgan shot and paralyzed Paul Nussbaum when he saw Nussbaum use the shoulder to drive around traffic. Seeing Nussbaum pass him, Morgan grabbed his gun, reached across his wife, and shot through the passenger window. He didn't even know he had hit Nussbaum until he was arrested. Morgan also said that he was shocked by how loud his gun was, the one he chose to fire. When asked if he knew his actions were dangerous during trial, his response was simply, not at the time. This story shows how much anger can blind us, can completely distort and warp our moral compass. How it can even make us forget, firing a gun at someone can result in their death. Then when we add cars to the mix, our ability to contain anger or even simple frustration plummets. And that, the combination of cars, anger, and guns, has resulted in at least 1,319 incidences of gun-fueled road rage between 2014 and 2016. Nationwide, at least 354 people were wounded and 136 people were killed. One of those 136 was Zach. A Senseless Death is produced and hosted by Lindy Bustetz, mixed and edited by Chris Bustetz. Music provided by artists from Artlist.io. If you have any information regarding Zach's murder, you can contact us and the Spokane Police Department on our website, asenselessdeath.com. <laughs>